If you've ever attended a funeral, then you probably heard a minister, a family member, or a close friend talk about the legacy of the one who has passed. A legacy can be a gift or inheritance that is handed down to others, but the most treasured legacy is comprised of intangible gifts. They are memories, friendships, love, values. A person's legacy is often how a person is remembered during the funeral. And a legacy is what usually determines the lasting influence following the funeral. A legacy is the most important thing that is left after a well-lived life. I know I need to build a legacy. And whether it is as a husband, father, friend, pastor, or believer, I desire to build a good one. I also know that my legacy is not simply a compilation of what I do while teaching or preaching. There will be more to my legacy than a few sermon podcasts or Bible study notes. A legacy is built by decisions, small and great, in front of a crowd and in private. Building a legacy is an every day and every hour responsibility. I don't always think of my legacy when I'm making decisions or determining time spent on certain activities. Some decisions I make are determined by what is practical from my point of view, or what makes sense at the time, or maybe what's the least onerous decision, or what is more comfortable, or it could be simply something that I feel I deserve. I'm not the only one who gets caught up in the day-to-day decisions of life. Not enough of us live with the idea of the construction and impact of our legacy. A good question for us to ask is, do we live to leave a legacy that honors Christ? Some may believe that legacy is for someone older, or someone with a family, or someone with a career that involves leadership of others. The truth is, we all build a legacy, whether we think about it or not. A legacy is usually talked about when a political term, a relationship, a job, a career, or a life comes to an end. Did you live someplace before moving to your current home? You left a legacy behind, at a school, at work, in a church, in a neighborhood, or in a city. When you change schools, jobs, hometowns, you always leave a legacy behind. So how do we build our legacy in a neighborhood, in a city, in a company, in a school, or in a family? Here's what the Bible teaches. A legacy of faith is built one day and one decision at a time. In the Bible, we see examples of men and women who built and left legacies of faith. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Elijah, and Daniel come to mind. Paul and Peter are good examples, too. The Bible also shares the stories of those who failed miserably in leaving a legacy. No matter where we are in our legacy building, we will find someone in the Bible we can relate to. In Judges, we witness the end of Gideon's life, and we see in straightforward talk how his legacy was built and what impact it had on his family, friends, and nation. It's a story without a happy ending. The story is a warning that we should take seriously because legacy matters. Now, This is a word of warning. If you have built Gideon up in your mind as a great hero who whipped the Midianites, then you may be shocked to hear the rest of the story. 
See, most people who know the Bible have heard about Gideon's victory. Few know about the rest of the story of Gideon's life. Gideon's final years are a reminder that building a legacy is a marathon rather than a sprint. Let's now turn to God's Word. Judges 8, 22 and 23. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now imagine being offered the chance to be a king. That would have been a great opportunity for Gideon. This was a huge test of his character. Now it did make sense. The nation needed a sense of solidarity and unity. The battle-tested Gideon represented the best option in terms of security. But here are the problems related to the people asking Gideon to be their king. One, they attributed the deliverance to a human leader rather than God. And two, they were attempting to replace God as king with a human dynasty. The key to our understanding is to recognize that this was not God's will or his plan for Gideon and the nation of Israel. Once again, we see evidence that the nation of Israel often failed to follow God and instead followed the examples of their pagan neighbors. God intended for the people to accept him as their king. Following the great victory over the Midianites, the people should have been praising God. Instead, they are seen begging Gideon to be their king. One of the oldest tendencies we have as humans is to exalt people to a place that belongs only to God. Fortunately, Gideon remembered it was God who delivered them. Gideon recognized that he was not called to be king because they already had a king. Their king was God. Gideon wasn't ready to overtly usurp a role God had not given him. So listen to Gideon's response. I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon's response was the best response he could have given. Too bad the story doesn't end right here. If the story ended here, we would see the legacy of Gideon as being far different from what it actually became. Here we learn that one event, one decision, doesn't make a legacy. A legacy often takes a lifetime. In verse 23, we read that Gideon turned down the crown. But that's not to say that Gideon didn't take advantage of his popularity. We will soon discover that Gideon's words did not match his actions. It's not enough to declare the truth. We need to live it. Now Judges 8:24, And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. Gideon refused the responsibility of being king, but he didn't exactly redirect the people's praise from himself to God. Instead, he capitalized on the people's appreciation for, quote, his deliverance. Here's where Gideon begins his lifestyle of compromise. Gideon made sure that the rest of his days were adequately resourced. He made sure he got what was coming to him. Let's break down Gideon's steps to his success in the following verses. 
First, he asked for wealth to be given to him. Gideon asked the soldiers for an earring from the plunder. The Midianites, who were somehow connected to the Ishmaelites, wore gold earrings, and thus there were thousands of earrings taken from the 100,000 fallen Midianite soldiers. Now, Judges 8, 25 and 26. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And so the soldiers who followed Gideon into battle, and even those who performed the mop-up duty after the battle, were happy to give Daniel the gold. For each soldier, this was a small donation. The small donation soon became 1,700 shekels, or 43 pounds of gold. This was more than 150 years of wages for the average man. But Gideon didn't stop at requesting the gold earrings. Gideon also gathered the pendants and purple worn by the kings of Midian and even their camels. He wasn't willing to accept the title of king nor the responsibilities, but he did want to look like a king. At some point in time, Gideon decided that being the one chosen by God to lead the army was going to pay off for him. And since there were no book deals, no movie rights to sell, no speaking tour fees to collect, and no cushy government office, Gideon asked for his reward from the spoils of God's victory. Now, why would Gideon need all this wealth? We will soon see he had a family to take care of. While Gideon didn't want to be their king, he did want to be rewarded for his deliverance. Judges 8.27 And Gideon made an ephod of it, and put it in his city, in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Here we see the second step that he took to make sure that he lived a life of success. He set himself up as the new voice for God. So what was an ephod? The original was an expensive and elaborate breastpiece that was to be worn only by the high priest and only during his service within the tabernacle. The ephod would contain the Urim and the Thunim, which guided in the discernment of God's will. Gideon's ephod may have been a replica of the original. The ephod, along with the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, were supposed to be one of a kind. And since Gideon didn't have the original, he decided he needed his own copy. Maybe he wanted direct guidance from God. If the real high priest wasn't doing the job, then why not Gideon? Gideon's purpose might have been to replace the God-appointed high priest and install himself as the one people were to come to to learn God's will. Once the ephod was made, Gideon placed the garment in some kind of display in his hometown, which eventually became a shrine. Instead of building a presidential library, Gideon built a shrine for people to visit. Gideon essentially set up his hometown as a rival place of worship where people could come to him for guidance. The result was that the family of Gideon and many of the people of Israel prostituted themselves with it. Gideon placed himself as a replacement to God's appointed high priest, and unfortunately, his family and the people 
followed. Gideon didn't want to be king, but he certainly wanted people to follow him. When people insist on having what God has not given them, they often find themselves trapped. Gideon and the nation of Israel experienced the trap of following themselves. God will sometimes allow us to get what we want in order to enable us to experience the pain firsthand of disobedience. Judges 8, 28, and 29. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now verse 28 sounds pretty good. Midian was defeated, the land was at peace, and Gideon is now wealthy beyond his wildest imagination. Plus, with the ephod, he had the people coming to him for guidance. Gideon made sure the nation would not forget him. His new name, Jerubbaal, was a reminder of how Gideon challenged Baal and won the victory. The next verse reveals the third way Gideon built his success and lived above his neighbors. Judges 8, 30 and 31. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. In these verses, we see Gideon's third step to living a life of success. He lived the lifestyle of a king with a harem. Gideon established a rather large harem, comparable to any ancient king. Gideon was living large, and his family grew as a result. Here's evidence that Gideon became increasingly carnal in his lifestyle. The man who declined the title of king appears to have lived the life of a king. Few in Israel had more than one wife, and only the pagan kings had scores of wives. That is, pagan kings and Gideon. He also set up a mistress in Shechem. And what was Shechem? Shechem was a Canaanite city, and God had made it clear for his people to avoid any alliance or business relationship with the Canaanites. Evidently, Gideon didn't follow God's direction on avoiding the Canaanites. He probably visited Shechem often, often enough to require a concubine there to meet his needs. And what about naming the son Abimelech? There are three other people with this name in the Bible, all of them Philistines. The name meant, the father is king, or my father is king. Gideon didn't choose this name for any of his sons in Israel, but he did for the child born outside of Israel. Gideon couldn't be king in Israel, but that didn't stop him from living as a king and declaring that through his offspring. Judges 8.32 And Gideon the son of Joash died in a good old age, and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father, at Ophrah of the Abizrites. Thus, Gideon lived a long life. Here's the good. He did refuse the title of king. But here's the bad. He denied himself little else. There was not much that he experienced that was different from being a king. Let's compare Gideon with the kings of history. We know from history that kings would demand gifts from their subjects. 
We know from history that kings would use their power and influence to increase their wealth. We know from the history books that kings would display symbols of royalty to demonstrate their power. And we also know that the kings of old would establish and maintain harems with the wealth they drew from the population. Well, it's clear to see that Gideon wanted the lifestyle of a king, just not the responsibility of a king. As a result of God's defeat of the Midianites, the land was at peace for 40 years, and those years were years of personal luxury for Gideon. He lived comfortably. He was considered a success by most standards. He was probably respected and envied by many. His funeral was probably attended by representatives from all of the tribes. It probably triggered a time of mourning. But the mourning or the remembrance didn't last too long. Gideon's legacy, built over 40 years of peace, should have pointed the nation's attention toward God. Evidently, his legacy had the opposite effect. Judges 8.33 As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. The word whored is often translated prostituted. It always refers to spiritual unfaithfulness. The nation of Israel became spiritually unfaithful to God. And what about Baal Barith? It means Baal of the covenant. This was a direct substitute for their true covenant Lord, the Lord who had brought them out of Egypt, the Lord who gave them the land of promise, and the Lord who had delivered them from the Midianites. The Bible teaches that the people quickly turned back to Baal after Gideon's death, and it was as if they were simply waiting for the old man to die so that they could worship their own gods. In life, Gideon failed to lead his people to worship God and to reject the Baals, because he himself failed to preserve the worship of God in his own life. Under 40 years of Gideon's leadership and influence, Israel became completely Canaanized, while Gideon became completely comfortable. And now, here's more about the slide of the people back into idolatry. Judges 8, 34. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side. Evidently, all the mighty and wonderful acts of God were now forgotten. Gideon, the judge, should have kept the name of God before the people. Instead, the opposite happened. We now look backward to the battle cry that Gideon gave, for the Lord and for Gideon, and wonder why it's not simply, for the Lord, or for the Lord and Israel. Gideon evidently lived wanting the spotlight on himself. This was not hidden from the people, and as a result, the people lived with spiritual ingratitude. They were following a leader that didn't follow or honor God. Next, we will see that while Gideon failed to honor God throughout his life, the people would fail to honor the family of Gideon, Judges 8, 35. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. 
Despite all the achievements of Gideon, he made no permanent spiritual difference in the life of the people. It's probable that Gideon's new ephod took people further away from God. In the end, Gideon did what was right in his own eyes. Instead of following the commands of God in the books of Moses, Gideon finished his life following his own desires. Yes, Gideon lived well. He was comfortable, and he enjoyed peace. But the tragedy is that his family and nation paid the price of his failed legacy. Here's a summary. These verses tell the story of Gideon's legacy. Evidently, there was a gap in what Gideon believed about God in his head and the motives of his heart and his actions. Gideon failed to live out what he knew to be true. In this day, we need to remember that Gideon's legacy was not built in a few days as he destroyed the Midianite army through his obedience to the Lord. Rather, Gideon's legacy was built one day and one decision at a time. When he died, the people didn't remember the few days he followed God into battle. What mattered was how he lived his life each day after that initial victory. Which brings us to our main point. A legacy of faith is built one day and one decision at a time. After a lifetime of meeting his own needs, it shouldn't come as a shock to see that those who followed him would do the same. At the beginning of the study, we were introduced to Gideon as a man afraid, threshing wheat in a wine press not far from his father's altar to Baal. Now at his death, we see that while he may not have returned to worshiping Baal himself, his family and nation quickly turned back to life before Gideon. Gideon's legacy is one of a missed opportunity to provide lasting hope for his people. Except for a few days of battle, it's almost as if Gideon never lived or influenced another to serve the Lord. Could there be a lesson for you in the life of Gideon? I think one valuable lesson would be to keep the number of spouses down to one and the number of concubines at zero. Now consider this. Whether you realize it or not, you are building your legacy with those who know you. The legacy that will last will not be built on one emotional decision or one key victory in your life. Your legacy will be built one day and one decision at a time. Some of you are building a wonderful legacy of success and investment in your family. A successful life and wonderful family are blessings you and I would want all to experience. But remember, even Gideon did that. Gideon was successful financially and he provided for a rather large family. Gideon would have been recognized as successful in the world today. What you need to recognize today is that the most important legacy that you will ever hope to build and ultimately leave behind will not be simply your worldly success, but how well you lived out a life of faith before God. The legacy of faith is not built on a single emotional and life-changing salvation experience. Instead, a legacy of faith is built one day and one decision at a time. Here is where Gideon failed and why you should not follow his example. Why not take the Gideon legacy test? Now, with apologies to Jeff Foxworthy, here's my You Might Be a Gideon test. Number one, 
If your faith requires more than the Word of God, then you may be a Gideon. Number two, if your obedience comes with personal demands and or changes, then you may be a Gideon. Number three, if your goals are material success rather than spiritual maturity, then you may be a Gideon. Number four, if your passion is public recognition rather than personal sacrifice, then you may be a Gideon. And number five, if your focus is on comfort instead of obeying God, then you may be a Gideon. Here's a lesson from these verses. Don't be a Gideon. Start building, or if need be, rebuilding your legacy of faith today. Are you dating or contemplating getting married? Remember this, you are building a legacy of faith as a single person that will influence your marriage. Or are you married without kids? Then you are building a spiritual legacy with your spouse that will one day impact future children. Build your home's spiritual foundation before you have children because it doesn't get easier when children come. Or are you raising a family right now? If you are raising a family right now, then you are building a legacy of faith with your children because they are watching your marriage. They're watching how you care for them. They're watching your lifestyle, your focus, and your passions. Keep building a legacy of faith with your children. Or are you an empty nester? You built a legacy through the years. What kind of legacy did you leave with your children as they left your home? Would you like the opportunity to restructure your legacy? It's not too late to rework your legacy of faith. And finally, are you a follower of Christ? Are you building a legacy of faith that will influence your friends, family, a small group, and a church to follow God? I've heard it said before that as a believer, you are to live life backwards. You begin with the knowledge that the key to a great legacy is not where you start out in life, but where you will spend eternity. That type of thinking will influence how you want to build your legacy. The legacy you build each day in both the small and large decisions should reflect your final destination. The profession of faith of a believer is to be followed by a lifetime of obedience, and that lifetime of obedience will result in your legacy. Your legacy should point people to Christ and to eternity in heaven. So here's a challenge. Make your life count for the Lord who gave his life for you. Now, here's the main point again. Your legacy of faith is built one day and one decision at a time. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So consider this next week, a construction week, as you look at building your legacy of faith. How do you build a legacy of faith? Here's a few tips from the blueprint for legacy that is the Bible. Tip number one, follow God's direction. That's why we have His Word. Do you spend time, enough time in God's Word each day? Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Tip number one, follow God's direction. Tip number two, seek a lifestyle that will honor Him. How does your family view your priorities? Do they see you as honoring God? Listen to Galatians 2.20. Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Seek a lifestyle that will honor him. Now tip number three, live faithfully in the day-to-day activities of life. A legacy is often built without fanfare or crowds. It is built with everyday obedience to Christ. And when it comes to everyday obedience, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6, 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is a challenge for every believer, because what we do for others will turn out to be our legacy. You may be thinking all of that sounds good, but what about the first step? Let me suggest three steps to begin with today. Step number one, determine the personal relationship in your life where your legacy needs the most work. Step two, Consider what you can do this week to strengthen your legacy of faith in that relationship. Now remember, one-time obedience has little influence over time. We can just look back at the story of Gideon to see that. What translates legacy the most is often day-by-day obedience. So you don't have to think big this week. Just think consistent. Then there's step three. Share with God your commitment to better your legacy of faith. Ask Him to work in your life and give Him the glory for your legacy. And that wraps it up. Here's a challenge. Commit to one action this week to strengthen your legacy of faith. What's one thing that you could begin this week that would build your legacy of faith? Could it be to commit to reading the Bible each day? Or how about making the commitment to attend a Bible study? Could it be making a greater commitment of time to another person? Could it involve allowing your faith to influence your decisions at work? Or what about simply talking about the Lord more with your family and friends? I challenge you to commit to one action this week to strengthen your legacy of faith. Think about the future with me. What will people say about you when your life is over? What will your children say about you to their children? What will your co-workers or the organization you have given so much of your time say about you? Imagine with me all who knew you saying the same thing. They saw demonstrated in your life over and over and over again a commitment to the Lord. How awesome it would be if they all said, she was a faithful follower of Christ or He lived as a champion, not for himself, but for the Lord. That's to be our legacy as believers. Now we need to go out and live it. This concludes another episode of the podcast, Discover the Bible with Dr. James Harms. Thank you so much for listening. Should you have any questions or comments about the lesson, please contact me at jamesharms at gmail.com. Once again, the email address to reach me with questions or comments is jamesharms at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and start a conversation. Thank you again for listening to the podcast. 
Discover the Bible.